Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me, Ashley, and and it was it's a pleasure to meet finally. You know, uh, and we were supposed to meet at the London event, but uh, well, now from Barcelona to Greece. Well, how do I introduce myself? I I don't know because it keeps changing. But you know, the let's just get the technicalities out of the way. My name is Umut. Uh, my surname is giving a headache to every single person that I know of, other than Turks, because it's it's the most ethnic uh, surname you can imagine. It's Özkırımlı in Turkish, which means pure Crimean, because my okay. ancestors came from Crimea during the Ottoman Russian War. Uh, well, I feel for you a bit because uh, my husband's last name is Putahidi. And when I first met uh-huh. him, his name, his name is Adiyus Putahidis. And I had to like get him to say his name like 15 times. And actually, I've learned from your book that that's me saying that just now is a microaggression. Cancelled. The left way back from woke. Page 82. Alas, they're the ones who cause the most harm to people of color. But how? Well, our racism is not blatant, of course. D'Angelo says, switching again to first-person plural. We employ more subtle methods, racial insensitivity, ignorance, and arrogance. Not clear enough? Here are some examples. This is just a small sample from a list of 35. BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Repeating, rewording, explaining what a BIPOC person just said. Calling a Black person articulate, expressing surprise at their intelligence, credentials, or class status. Making a point of letting people know that you are married to a BIPOC person or have BIPOC people in your family. Insisting that your equity team address every other possible form of oppression, resulting in racism not getting addressed in depth or at all. It's really about class. Loving and recommending films about racism that feature white saviors. Asking how to start a diversity consulting business because you attended a talk and found it interesting. No, no, that's D'Angelo's domain. She doesn't accept competitors. Competitors are racist. And the final blow. Not understanding why something on this list is problematic, and rather than seeking to educate yourself further, dismiss it as invalid. Oh, yeah, 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 it is. For some people, well, I think... I have people in my family with a difficult name, so that excuses the fact that I didn't even make an attempt to say your name. Well, first of all, I'm white and I'm male, so, you know... You know that we are considered to be immune to microaggressions. We can't be microaggressed. Uh, and actually, I think you have a, you know, you, you, you can make a case for having, you know, like having a good place in the victimhood and oppression hierarchy coming from, you know, an indigenous, whatever, having indigenous roots in Canada. Oh, oh no, 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 you can't, because I, I, I've said that before. You know, like, uh-huh. look, I'm talking about indigenous issues because this is part of my family. Like, oh, yeah, but you look white, so you have white privilege. Oh, my so. God. I mean, uh, we just stick to my name. That's what I tell to all my hosts and friends. It's it's straightforward, Umut, uh, which means hope, actually. Uh, Alpida in Greek. <laughs> Alpida. Uh, Alpida. <laughs> actually, in Greek, they have two forms. Uh, Alpida and Alpidophoros, the ancient version. Uh, mm-hmm. In Turkish, umut is okay. Let's use another fancy term, non-binary. Yeah, <laughs> both both man and woman can have it. And actually, I know more women who are named umut than than myself. Well, basically, I've been in academia since uh, mid '90s, and uh, I'm a political scientist by training. Uh, I I had a master's in international relations as well, but I consider myself more 
of a of a political scientist and and my real expertise idea area of study is nationalism identity and all of that i mean that's part of the reason why i always look into people's now yes you said as you said you know even asking about where you're coming from or you know what are you really are from are kind of microaggressions racism white supremacy and all that crap i would say uh, but it's part of my you know it's it's my job i, I because I, you know i need to know when i'm teaching in a class new class to know where people are coming from and then how do they define themselves what part of their identity comes forward when it comes to defining uh, you know who you are etc so i did you know i've i've done all my I've spent all my career by writing on nationalism. The reason why I li- I'm a little bit familiar with Greece is because we've written with a Greek colleague of mine the first book on a comparative study of Turkey, Turkish and Greek nationalisms in 2008. So I had a Greek phase in my life, Greece and Cyprus and all of that. I published several books, but the one that a lot of people know me for is my textbook on nationalism, Theories of Nationalism, which is now in its third edition and all of that then uh, and i think that will kind of slowly get us into the first question that you mentioned earlier um i just had a break in my life basically because you know i moved to sweden i continued working on these issues academically uh in 2013 something amazing happened and i had a beautiful boy luca um uh but on uh, uh that story turned like took a very tragic twist very quickly when he was 11 months old he was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of childhood cancer which hits one in 1 million kids and and so there's sorry. still no treatment for that neuroblastoma uh so 5 years of basically traveling the world trying to find a cure uh and eventually we lost him in 2018 and that kind of led so me thank you thank you well i mean you know parents know much better what what that means um especially mothers actually you know that's one of the things that that i realize more and more like the, the idea that that womanhood or motherhood you know motherhood doesn't define woman it's like yeah but anyway uh so i came to spain right now i'm affiliated with a number of institutions here uh the uh, ebay the institute of barcelona of uh, international studies uh i teach here i teach in a private university blanquena i'm affiliated with a think tank of international affairs cedop so i'm like doing bits and pieces everywhere the idea when i got here was well I, for, for like i should say that two years were like completely lost because i was suffering from ptsd and all of that But when I was coming back to work the idea was to write a book on the far right and populism because you know I don't like to kind of even though I do have an area of expertise I don't want to keep repeating myself that much so it seemed like the logical next step for me also because I needed to kind of uh distract myself a little bit but then things happened uh and I ended up actually seeing uh the similarities between what passes as the left and and the right uh and and the whole thing changed the whole picture changed and and at the end of a kind of what 3 4 year period 
you got uh, my last book, which is, well, I mean, it's it's a first, as as I say in the in the prologue, <laughs> it's like it's a first in many ways. It's my first trade book. It's my, it's the first book that I've written. You know, ha- after losing my son, it's it's the first book that is not on nationalism, uh, but I enjoyed it so much, uh, and and. Yeah, I, I I have to admit that I'm you know I also enjoyed being provocative uh, because I think you know I'm at a stage of my career that I don't kind of feel like I've been cancelled uh, and I survived it and 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 I also had the worst kind of trauma that any parent could live in 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 his life or life so basically you know I'm right now immune to everything. And my career stage allows me to say whatever I want. So I'm using my platform to, shall we use a kind of left-wing progressive term, to stick, uh, you know, to put the stick in the wheel of functioning, you know, uh, orthodoxies, basically, ideologies and whatever you want. I'm very glad that you've written this book. It's called uh, Cancelled, The Left Way Back from Woke, which I've got here with lots of my typical writing all inside of books and totally ruining them for mm-hmm. anyone I loan them to. This is the first uh, time that everybody will see this. This is the Spanish edition of ah. It's not even published yet. It's an early copy that I have. Well, it's exactly the same cover and everything, but it's in Spanish. Uh, it will be out in on the 18th, I think. And I'm looking forward to it because, you know, in Spanish-speaking countries, there's a huge kind of hunger for these ideas because the left mm. here is not in power as such, but it's fighting for it. It's it's lively. Mm-hmm. Just like Greece, actually, you know? Uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's this kind of, you know, they're not in power, I, we know, but the point is, there's hunger for discussion and improvement. But I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what brought you to write this book. I'm not sure if it brought you to write this book, but it, it, perhaps it was the germs of it, uh, yeah. the seeds yeah, that yeah. were planted in uh, 2019. I mean, the best uh, term uh, to describe this actually was um, was suggested by uh, one of our publicists in U.S., Politis Publicist, and she said she called it the origin story. Uh, and it is true. I mean, the, the story that I tell in the prologue is completely true. Uh, what happened was, is was a um, now I can speak with a lot of kind of um, uh, certitude because, you know, the whole process has been over, both legally and all sorts of things. It's It's been wrapped up and my cancellation has been long over. But what happened was, you know, uh, a person that I had a, some kind of a fling with a relationship with, um, um, complained about, you know, filed a complaint of of an undefined harassment about me using the Me Too wave, basically to get rid of me in a joint European grant that we got together. It was a 200,000 euro grant. I was the supervisor. I was supposed to be the supervisor. The, The relationship, the fling, was out started outside academia. We didn't have any power hierarchies. It was a completely normal thing. Then she came to Sweden to be with me, uh, and we started a kind of a, this kind of a relationship. We started making joint applications to find money, and we did actually. Uh, and at some point, when I was dealing with the illness of my son, I you know there were some bitter kind of periods. 
typical, you know, typical kind of turning something into a relationship thing. Uh, I received a, a blackmail message saying that if I don't step down from the project, she will file a complaint of harassment. This was oh, the, wow. at the height of Me Too. All of this is in writing. That's why I, I won my court cases. And she, she did, even though I, I did withdraw from the project. Uh, that went on for like in stealth mode, silently for two years. Well, I, we lost our son uh, six months after that. Um, and then I heard that, you know, in private, these, these rumors were circulating. So I lawyered up and I just sent cease and desist letters to her because there was nothing that she could say uh, to incriminate me. In the end, she went on to Turkish Twitter where she knew she would have more impact. And she accused me of, as I said, an undefined harassment. Now, the, the, the funny thing, now I'm saying funny, but it's actually tragic. Well, the, it's a typical pylon and everything like that. But, but what was unexpected is that the Turkish state jumped on the occasion within 24 hours, launched an investigation about me for being a terrorist. Wow. Uh, using these accusations. Uh, because I was known for being critical of the state, the Islamist government, etc., for the last, well, since the Gezi protests, at least 2013. So it, it became a huge thing. I mean, I was a trending topic in Turkey for like 24 hours uh, in 2020. Uh, but I did have enough documents to show that the allegations were not correct. So I tried, well, I published some of them. Then, uh, and, and that's now kind of, well, the end of this story is, is relatively easy to say. I sued this person in Sweden uh, on purpose because, not only because, you know, the, the whole thing took place in Sweden, but also, you know, you can trust rule of law in Sweden. They're like number one in rule of law index. They're number one in gender equality index. So I said, like, if I get a decision there, nobody is going to contest it. And it's like an American system. So there's a jury. And, and it's a criminal case, so you have to convict the person beyond any reasonable doubt. Out of 11 charges of defamation and gross defamation, she was found guilty out of seven. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, process basically cost me a lot of money because, you know, I don't have savings, anything like that. Uh, but I won and I was acquitted. My, my cancellation ended long before that because when I published the written documents that I had, People realized that this was an organized kind of, you know, uh, smear campaign. Now, the weird thing that happened in that point is that the Turkish state was, of course, unexpected, but there was a logic to it. But what happened was I became the catalyst for Turkey's gender wars. Now, <laughs> the, the, that, the, 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 and that happened because, you know, this, the, my accuser at some point uh, tweeted something uh, attacking the feminists who went through the documents I published and realized that this was uh, this was a fab a fabrication and starting uh, exposing the lies. So the feminists, radical feminists, and I didn't know any one of them at that point, uh, who kind of tried to to kind of enlighten the situation and stressed importance of due process that there are lies in this. And all of that. So basically, actually, some of them saying that these kinds of lies would hurt the real Me Too movement, the real victims. They were called TERFs. 
Now, I don't know, I, I'm probably, yes, your followers will be familiar with this term, but if they're not, this is trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I wasn't aware of what that was. I had to Google the term. Oh, why would they be called that for talking about false allegations? Aren't they usually ta- called that for not... Um... For being no, that's that's the thing because you know this uh, that this particular tweet uh, that's now deleted. She kind of you know the accuser brought in you know oh it's not surprising that turfs the radical feminists oh, are I the see. ones who are supporting uh, my whatever perpetrator of of this harassment whatever it is, and 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 of course you know when it goes to social media the the word harassment is a very dangerous thing because i was never not even by my accuser you know nobody was accusing me of anything sexual for instance uh this was de- defined by the university itself as a workplace conflict uh simple as that but nobody of course you know is interested in these details when a pylon starts uh so as i said you know all of a sudden there were two groups of women uh all of them self-defined feminists uh, around this issue, uh, but one of them, uh, and and without us realizing how that happened, uh, the people who were asking for due process, justice, you know, truth, etc., have also been called transphobic. So it, mm-hmm. there was a weird, strange twist that we couldn't make sense of, and then I said, okay, there's something wrong. I mean. There was something there that, okay, uh, because in the age of Me Too, us men, I know the statistics, I know how many women, I mean, I know that 80% of perpetrators of domestic violence, sexual abuse, etc., are men, all of these things. So at, at the beginning, I never expected anyone to believe me anyways. So I started myself with the assumption that I the burden of proof falls on me and I have to prove to people who don't know me, that I'm not guilty. So the assumption, you know, the the typical principle of law was reversed. I was guilty until proven innocent. But I did that because, you know, I was lucky to have thousands of documents, literally. I mean, I did, you know, I went to court several times. So, you know, I know. And I, I mean, and at that point, the whole thing was over, but then it evolved, it transformed it kind of transmogrified into something completely different, which was this. Uh, and nobody was talking about me anymore. In six months' time, it was all about, uh, you know, it's, it's th- at that point, I, was, I realized, I mean, said, okay, there are two groups who are accusing. One is the right-wing Islamist authoritarian Turkey state. The other side are the so-called feminists Identity politics people, LGBTQ rights activists, uh, so pe- the so-called progressive identitarians. And I said, this there must be something wrong with this. I mean, you know, this is not uh, what I would, you know. And I started reading, and I started learning. You know, that was the beginning of the process. I mean, that's why I use the rabbit hole. It's it's a cliche by now, but the point is, it was a rabbit hole. I mean, I fell into it. And I had to, I, I didn't realize that actually uh, that what passes as the left is, is much worse uh, than at some, you know, I'm saying much worse deliberately here. I'm not equating the right and the left, but the right, apart from some segments of it, is at least honest. 
you you know what Trump is. Mm. He's not trying to hide who he is. You know, if it's if if he wants to say something racist, he says it. But the left is also trying to appear as progressive and and trying to sell this to us as being you know virtuous and and moral and all of that. Now at that point, I decided that I should write about this basically. And that's the beginning of the book. And the subtitle actually says it all because I'm I'm uh, educated and raised by uh, kind of internationalist leftists, Marxists. My supervisor was Fred Halliday. The the people that I learned gender from were second wave feminists like Denis Candioti, Nira Yuval Davis, and all of that. So for me, none of this made sense. Uh, this queer theory and all of that, and 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 actually, you know, it. So that's why I, I kind of chose the subtitle and said, okay, that there, we must fight to reclaim the left or progressive politics from these. Let me just be open as much as <laughs> these charlatans. Mm. Simple. I, I wonder, a part of me wonders if some of it is about powerlessness or a perceived sense of powerlessness in one's life. So just by way of anecdote to explain what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. uh, I got my first job when I was 14. And, um, you know, I was young and wide-eyed and so on. <laughs> and and uh, the I worked at a bingo hall. <laughs> I drove uh -huh, a little okay. cart, cart around selling coffee off of a little cart. This is Canada, and, right? This is in Canada, yeah. yeah. And my bosses were these middle-aged women who were evil. And horrible to me. <laughs> and they were horrible, to be fair. They were, you know, equal opportunity horrible. So they were equally horrible to everyone. But, you know, we were young kids and they just, it's like they wanted to beat the, the like, uh, all of our wide-eyed optimism out of us. <laughs> and a part of me has always thought about that. Like, why were these women, you know, adults, being so awful to, like, 14, 16-year-old kids, 14 to 16-year-old kids? And I think... It's because all their lives they had been very powerless. And, um, you know, I, I heard them talk about their life stories, you know, over the years that I worked there, a couple of years that I worked there. And I felt that when they got a little taste of power, this tiny little power being manager of a bingo hall, like oh, yeah. <laughs> refreshment stand, uh, they, they relished it. And there was no infraction too small for them to really come for us. Like, I, I, I remember just tiny little things and how, like, I was always on edge. I was, like, walking on eggshells all the time. It was really terrible. But uh, I liked money, so I stayed. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> stayed long enough. Anyway, um, and I always think about this as, like, a lesson. Like, if somebody is powerless for long enough, when they get a little taste of power, watch out. <laughs> or, or maybe I'm putting too much stock into the idea that people, these the, the people who do the canceling, the people who are the activists, who are the most fervent people online, that they are powerless because um, the the debate that I was we were supposed to meet at, which I was unfortunately unable to attend in the end. Um, one of the questions I watched it back from Alan Sokol was, uh, "You don't talk about class." I'm going to make a criticism of this book. One criticism. But it's not, it's not a criticism of anything he wrote. It's just a criticism of something that he didn't write. That maybe, <laughs> and that he maybe he now thinks he should have written. Um, and so it is that he failed to analyze the class origins of woke ideology. 
And I would put forth the conjecture. I mean, I think it's something that sociologists should study more carefully, and I'm not a sociologist. I want to put forward the conjecture that woke ideology is a quintessential ideology of the professional managerial class. So it's the class of salaried mental workers who don't own the means of production, but who are not members of the traditional working class. People like Alice and me and Umut, that leave the truth, right? And woke ideology is a way for members of the PMC to portray themselves and actually see themselves, which is even more important, see themselves as virtuous defenders of the oppressed while at the same time primarily serving their own class interests. And I think there are at least three ways in which woke ideology serves the PMC's class interests. Um, the first is for the upper strata of the PMC, so that means people with managerial authority, especially people in corporate human resources departments. Um, woke ideology authorizes them to regulate the speech and behavior and aspirationally even the thoughts of the working class and subordinate members of the PMC. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, for anybody in the PMC who wants to play the game, woke ideology can serve as a trump card in intra-class competition for jobs and influence. And so, for example, in universities, at least in the United States, you're beginning to see it. Um, they require diversity statements for job applicants. And in some cases, those are being used as a political litmus test to reject unsuitable candidates before their research and teaching are evaluated. That's really serious. Um, and, then, and then the third thing is for the lower strata of the PMC, so people whose economic situation may be on a par with or even lower than some members of the working class that they come in contact with. So I'm thinking of compare an editorial intern or an adjunct lecturer with an electrician or a plumber, right? Um, uh, woke ideology gives them psychological compensations. And I'd like to draw the analogy with the way that racism worked in the American South and to a lesser extent in the North too. Um, it gave poor whites a psychological compensation. It says, you know, we may be as poor as the blacks, but at least we're given the social deference that is appropriate for members of the superior race. And, and that, that's been written about a lot by, by, by scholars of racism. And, and I think that woke ideology um, gives um, the underemployed members of the PMC a similar psychological wage. It allows them to feel not only educationally superior to the working class, which they are, but actually morally superior, which they're not. And you said it's because it's a trade book, you know, and it's, yeah, you weren't going to go too deeply into things that were far too academic. But there is a, obviously a class dimension to this. So is it that these people are powerless and once they get a little taste of power, you know, for whatever reason in the culture war, they get the upper hand and then just smack people as hard as they can with it? Or is it something else? Oh, no, no, I, I completely agree. But I think it's more than the class dimension. I mean, it's, it's kind of a realization that they are bound to remain powerless, actually. 
you know that's that's i think where where the issue comes from because you know if you're looking at the broad picture uh the right or the conservative or the reactionaries whatever you call them and i'm not talking about here you know it's kind of in the simplistic characteristic characteristic terms of all the the racist and and, and white working classes and all of that no none of that basically you know um people who prefer stability conservatism you know are fearful of change and all of that they have uh, they're a majority in a lot of the countries that we have i mean we we see around the economic power belongs to the right politics basically the left sometimes makes a little bit of you know uh, win over there and lose afterwards etc and then yes there's the issue of neoliberalism the latest at the final stage of of capitalism in itself so the only little domain that that is left to them is culture education and the ideological culture wars so it's actually uh, it's in this limited domain that they feel powerful uh and of course wield their power through their superior education uh i mean that's what lies behind this kind of uh typical uh you know the deplorables discourse of hillary clinton and all of that you know it's 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 defined on the basis of that both class but class is not economic only in this context uh because uh in that talk alan talked about the professional managerial class so he did use on purpose a broader definition of class not this you know uh, old style marxist type of economic class only so once these people yeah they realize that first of all they have the power in that particular domain secondly they have very slim chances of extending it beyond that so all of a sudden we have universities or a little bit of you know activist streets as the battlegrounds and there they are as authoritarian as the people they're accusing uh, of being authoritarian and and that's that's what i mean lord acton said it in the 19th century power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely so the more powerful they got and that's something that i was trying to find out uh without resorting to simple generational you know changes and all of that oh you know the x were better the z are etc etc but there is there is a point at which an inflection point so to speak where you can see things changing and that's the mid 2010 you know to, from 2015 onwards and gathering speed in 2017 things have become much worse in terms of this new type of identity politics uh and part of the reason is that because uh, the big companies etc have seen the the window for profit for making profit out of identity as well i mean identity and that's why i put the emphasis a lot on commodification of identity in in the book like gucci uh, is using uh, a book by judith butler or simone de beauvoir to present to promote its new wallet uh, set which are i mean the cheapest i checked was 300 pounds uh you know Nike uses Dylan Mulvaney a trans woman uh, to present its own stuff uh Sarah Ahmed was you know the the famous queer theorist was on the cover of Vanity Fair last week 
I mean, you know, these things. And all of a sudden, we have another streak of neoliberalism, which is presented to us in a completely different and very glossy package. And on it, you could write either woke. If you don't like it, you can write identity politics, progressivism, virtue signaling, whatever you want. One thing that, of course, speeded up, facilitated, and, and actually also worsened everything is social media, obviously, because there things are happening fast. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I discovered, and it's scary, but it's an MIT research, and, and I, I was able to corroborate the findings from several different places, uh, uh, falsehoods spread on social media seven times faster than truth. Uh, and, and to kind of, you know, fix that, let's just say that you're canceled for a false accusation, like allegation, any type of allegation. That goes seven times faster than the, if, if you come up with the truth and say, no, 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 I didn't do that. Look at the documents, you know, look at the court cases and all of that. That travels much, much less slowly. So basically, we do live in, in a kind of completely made up world. And it is this powerlessness. Uh, so if, if, if you're not the master of the universe, then be the master of your domain, which is what they're doing. I want to come back to a few of the things that you've mentioned there, particularly around language or what do we call this? We call it wokeness, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, you said something interesting around commodification and neoliberalism that I wanted to explore a little bit more. Now, neoliberalism is often, it's, it's got to be one of the most misunderstood terms uh, on the left, but also it's a contested term. So it's to of be, course. you know, uh, and I interviewed for Sublation Media uh, quite a while back, uh, David Chandler, um, who wrote a book with Julian Reed called The Neoliberal Subject, which I really like. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a lot more sort of passive toward the idea of how what the neoliberal subject is and how it's constructed and the reality of it whereas i think that this this neoliberal subject which she sometimes calls the post-liberal subject because it signifies the death of everything that liberalism was <laughs> I see. it was okay. the, the death uh -huh. of the enlightenment subject as a rational being and so on which was um necessary to sort of fell feudalism to the ground you needed this strong subject yeah. it's being held back by feudalism now it's done its work now mm -hmm. you subjects go, you know, the genie's at the bottle. No, no, get get back in, get back in. Because these subjects, once they believe in their ability to have democracy and reason and so on, they're going to start putting their hands on the economy. They're going to yeah. start putting their yeah. hands where they don't belong. So that subject needed to be destroyed. And I think a key part of the, uh, the neoliberal project, which is the misunderstood bit, is that people think it's just a rehashing of liberalism, hence neoliberalism. Yeah, but I think it yeah. makes more sense to call it post-liberalism because it's a destruction and death and killing of that subject. It must you must learn that your actions are a risk, that you, mere human, do not have these capacities for reason. Look, I found all of this wonderful brain science, which shows that actually you are irrational, and this uh, undermines, without realizing it, often this undermines the whole basis of our democracy, our ability to enter into contracts, our ability to make decisions about who we're going to marry, this sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, is based on on a capacity for reason. So I think this idea of like uh, that wokeness, whatever you want to call it, we'll come to that, is neoliberal. I think is is right, but it's neoliberal in this kind of post liberal sense, in the sense of like the death of a liberal subject. That it is about 
sort of destroying the universalist nature of that liberal subject, which was like, I might come from a different background. You might come from another continent. You have mm-hmm. a totally different culture. You might speak a different language. But because we are both human, we possess something in common. I can speak to you on the basis of reason. I can show you things. I can say, look here, I did this experiment and I followed these steps. And it doesn't matter where you came from, but you can follow the same steps and you'll come, you should come to the same conclusion as I did. And if you didn't, we can argue about it. You know, this, this, these sorts of things can bring us together. This is now sort of rejected as intolerably oppressive uh, as a cover for like white supremacy and the scientific method and all of these sorts of things. And so it is, in my opinion, it's neoliberal in the sense of destruction of subjectivity. Um, but what do you mean when you say it's neoliberal? Do you mean it in this in this sense or maybe in an economic sense? I would pretty much agree with what you say. Uh, I mean, well, actually, I'm using it in a very uh, because I, being a political scientist kind of helps you. Uh, I mean, that's what I say to tell my students. I mean, when you talk about liberalism, you can talk about not neoliberalism, liberalism itself. You know, you you have a lot of different things. It's an economic system. It's a philosophy. It's political and all of that. So there's nothing in political liberalism that a progressive leftist shouldn't accept. I mean, we're talking about freedoms. We're talking about equality uh, of, yes, in liberalism, it says individuals. And as a leftist, you can extend this to communities. Now, what I found or find kind of, you know, in my case uh, and, and the way in which that I use the term, what, what strikes as most uh, important, this neoliberal subject, is the individualism and narcissism of it. Now, I do make a difference because I use the same thing myself. Like, uh, liberalism in all its forms takes the individual rights and freedoms and all of that as a basic unit of analysis. That's fine, and I think that's the only way to to kind of move forward. Uh, uh, it's like, um, I mean, when you study, you know, the, the, coming from outside to these debates always helped me because for instance, Mazzini is known to be a very nationalist thinker in Italy, uh, or Herder. He's considered to be the father of German romantics, etc. Not so black and white. A history of race from white supremacy to identity politics by Kenan Malik, published in 2023. Man has been the same in all ages, only he expressed himself in each case according to the conditions in which he lived. That might have been written by Hume, or Voltaire, or any mainstream Enlightenment figure, but Herder, whose words they are, meant by them something significantly different than did more mainstream thinkers. And that something significantly different helped give shape to ideas both of race and of anti-racism. Johann Gottfried von Herder was born in the eastern Prussian town of Mohringen, now part of Poland, in 1744. A seminal figure straddling the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment worlds, Herder sought through his philosophy to negotiate the terrain between moral universalism and cultural relativism, that is, between the claim, on the one hand, that all humans possess a common essence, by virtue of which all enjoy the right to be treated with respect and dignity, and on the other, the belief that one should understand and judge social norms and practices in terms of the cultures in which they are embedded not of the norms and practices of one's own society. Herder was as committed to social equality as any Enlightenment radical. He despised both colonialism and slavery. He was also a strong opponent of racial ideas. All mankind, he wrote, are only one and the same species. 
Fostering universalism, Herder insisted, required one to challenge the claim that European ideas were necessarily better by virtue of having come from Europe. The fundamental unit of human existence was, for Herder, the Volk. This is usually translated as the people or the nation, but has a deeper, more spiritual connotation. What made each Volk unique was its culture, its particular language, literature, culture, and modes of living. Herder's critique of the concept of race rested, at least in part, on the foundational character of the Volk to his worldview. The unique nature of each Volk was articulated through its Volksgeist, the spirit of a people refined through history. The relationship between the individual and the collective was expressed not through a political contract, but in a spiritual union. Vital to the uniqueness of every Volk was language, not language in the abstract, but the specific language through which an individual and a people expressed themselves. Herder saw himself as defending an authentic Germanness from imperialist designs, particularly of the perfidious French, but attachment to one's culture could blur into a detestation of others. In his poem, To the Germans, Herder bemoaned German intellectuals' embrace of French culture, and in particular of the French language. Spew out the ugly slime of the Seine. Speak German, O oh you German. It is not difficult to see how such sentiments might appeal to ultra-nationalists and reactionaries. Herder abhorred migration and mixture, which were strongly detrimental to the beauty or uniqueness of a people. Only when a people stayed attached to the geographic region of their ancestors could they remain whole. The philosopher Sonia Sika draws a contrast between Herder's views and those of a contemporary figure like Salman Rushdie. While in hiding from the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa, Rushdie wrote a defense of his novel The Satanic Verses, seeing it as a love song to our mongrel selves, a work that celebrates hybridity, impurity, intermingling, the transformation that comes of new and unexpected combinations of human beings, cultures, ideas, politics, movies, songs. The most vociferous critics of the Satanic Verses are, he noted, of the opinion that intermingling with a different culture will inevitably weaken and ruin their own. I am of the opposite opinion. Herder occupies an ambiguous role in modern political thought. In the 18th century, he stood in that part of the Enlightenment tradition that stressed the importance of equality, was deeply hostile to colonialism, and dismissed Eurocentric visions of universal values. Yet his approach, paradoxically, both sharpened the meaning of equality and universalism and gave succor to those hostile to those very notions. In the 20th century, his pluralism, celebration of cultural difference, and insistence on the incommensurability of values became the root of much anti-racist thinking and the often unacknowledged foundation of identity politics. Before that, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Herder's impact was to encourage, albeit unwittingly, the racial viewpoint. Once it was accepted that different peoples were motivated by different sentiments unique to themselves, that these sentiments inexpressibly imbued a people's history tradition and consciousness, and to find every individual's being, it was not a great leap to view those sentiments as racial, and as giving validation to segregation, apartheid, and worse. But Herder, yes, did believe in cultural authenticity and individualism of each nation, but he also believed that every nation had the same right. So his nationalism, he was a nationalist. He was the precursors of nationalism, at least. Uh, he believed that each nation had a soul, but he believed that all nations had a soul. 
So he never was for German expansionism, etc., etc. This came afterwards. His students, Fichte, etc., the Romantics, took it to that level. So individual, you know, individualism, individual as, as, as a unit of analysis should be the starting point of everything. But what we see here is not that. It's the turning of individual into an ideology in itself. I mean, just like it happened with gender. Gender is a social construct that all of us have been using for years. But when you be, make it, like when you politicize it more and more and you turn it into an ideology, then you're not talking about the description of how things are, but you also start to promote a vision of how things should be. So the new identity politics is individualistic in a narcissistic sense, consumerist sense. You know, what matters is me, my subjective feelings. Now, there's also a very weird turn of events there because these movements, which started as moral relativist, ended up into a very moralist, absolutist place. So there's no truth but my own inner sense of who I am. Fine. But then this is absolute. You have to accept it. So this is where, you know, this absolutism and narcissism come together. That's the neoliberal thing. Like, let's just say that you're fighting for a very worthy cause, climate against, cli you know, uh, climate change, environmental destruction. And you do believe that you have to attract attention. So you have to resort to civil disobedience to attract the attention of the media, of people, raise awareness. Fine, I can understand up to that point. But these young kids don't see the fact that when they do that, uh, they may have been blocking roads and an ambulance might not be able to pass as it happened on a few occasions and someone could die as a result of that action. And because then it becomes a collateral damage for their higher and nobler cause as it's happening right now in Israel and Gaza, as it's happening in other places. So that is the part that I found really, you know, identity has become a trump card. Uh, it was something that uh, I mean, the original identity politics of the 70s was, uh, was, was a basis to do politics. Right now, identity is something to shut down politics. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.